tithe, and we're going to go from verse 16 to 19. You know, the epistles, which is also known as letters, contain basically these things in it. You have the salutation, the introduction. Then you have the body of the epistle, the letter. And then you have concluding remarks or exhortations. And then you have the benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you or the grace of the Lord be with your spirit. That's the conclusion of it. You know, when the uh, railroad system was put in in America in the middle 1800s, for that to happen, there's certain things that, that had to be done. First of all, you had to lay the tracks down. Then you had to build the trains. And then you had to empower the trains to be able to succeed in fulfilling the whole railroad system. That sort of is what Christianity is like in a way, individually speaking. The tracks are the doctrine. We have to have clear, sound teaching and preaching of the word so that we can lay down our lives upon these truths and be settled with them. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, which is of first importance. Paul says, for other foundation can no one lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that which is first, he says, is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. That is the foundation of the life of the person who believes in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And on those tracks, if I can call it that, the doctrine is inclusive of how believers should live, what's laid out for us, how we understand what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to, understanding the love of God, the mercy of God, the judgment of God, the wrath of God are all important ingredients in understanding the track. Doctrine is vital. Teaching is vital. Secondly, the train. That's the practice. That's putting into practice what we know we learn from the Word of God as far as what is good teaching. My faith, my hope, my trust is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and nothing can shake that. But what the third ingredient is, the train needs to be empowered. That's us. We've got good doctrine. We practice it, but it can't really be performed until we are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. You know, you may have seen in your lifetime people that profess to be saved. You thought that they were born again. They seem to demonstrate indications that they were, and then they go back to their former ways, like a dog going back to its vomit, or as Peter says, like a pig that goes back to the pig pen. It's because they were never really empowered by the Holy Spirit that comes into the life of a believer that enables them to live a life of righteousness and godliness in separation from the world and be able to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not like you used to be. Praise God for that. We know we're not like we're going to be, but we do know that we're not like we used to be. So we praise God for that. This verse that I have assigned to me is verse 16. 
believe it or not, is the shortest verse in the Bible. We have been told that the small, shortest verse in the Bible is what? Jesus wept. But because the Bible was not written in English, it was written in Greek, the Greek here is actually shorter than John 11.35 that says Jesus wept. This one says, rejoice always, forever. Rejoice constantly. That's really a shorter verse in the original language than is John 11.35. If you were to describe yourself or someone was to describe you, what kind of person would you be described to be like? What is your character like? What, what, what are things about you that, that ooze from you? What kind of a person are you outwardly? You know, what you are on the outside should be what you are on the inside. A smiling face, the Bible says, he that hath a merry heart has a cheerful countenance. And, you know, when you get saved, your heart is made better because you're given a new heart. The, the flesh, the, 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 rather, the heart of stone is removed and the heart of flesh is put in place of it. And that should generate a whole new perspective on life, a whole new attitude. Can you attest that that's happened to you in your life, that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, that your life has been altered, that it's been changed you know, joy is not a common word that's used by people because the commoner word would be, are you happy? Happiness and joy are different. We're, we have a right as believers to be happy. Paul said to Agrippa, I, uh, I, I thank you, O Agrippa, that I am happy, O king. I thank you that I am happy, O king. He's thankful to God before Agrippa that he was a happy person. And it's truly, when you think of what we were before we were saved, the Bible says that he turns beauty into ashes. He gives you the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of holiness. There's a total reversal of life when you come to faith in Christ. And it should be evident in the way we think, the way we act, the way we look, the way we talk, and the way we present ourselves. Psalm 32, 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you that are upright in heart. How do we get this joy? When Jesus rose from the dead, as we said, the foundation, the tracks are the gospel. When Jesus rose from the dead in his first meeting with the apostles as they were in wonderment where the story about Jesus is that he's risen from the dead and he's been seen. Now finally the apostles come across him physically and here is Jesus' first words. You know what they are? Matthew 28 verse 9. King James says, Hail! Other translations say, Greetings! Other translations say, Rejoice! Rejoice. He's the song leader that starts the song of rejoicing. In the midst of the congregation will I praise you. Jesus is the song leader. He's the maestro. He's the one that gets the orchestra and the singers up and at him and going because he starts it off. I tried to start songs off. I'm not sure how I did, but he starts one off that we all join in with. And that Greek word, by the way, 
when it could be translated greeting or hail or rejoice. It's the identical same word that we have here in verse 16, rejoice. And if Jesus is greeting us that way, in first and foremost and saying rejoice, why? Because we serve a risen Savior. We've got the resurrection life in us. We've been transformed. The beauty has been transformed from ashes. We've got the oil of joy instead of mourning, and we got the garment of praise instead of the spirit of holiness, instead of the spirit of heaviness. When John writes his epistle, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I'm writing these things unto you that your joy may be full. Joy. Are you a joyful person? If you're a Christian, you should be. That's not to say that, as it says here, rejoice always. That is a hard command, if we look at at it that way as a command, to be rejoicing constantly, perpetually. We know that there's ups and downs. There's going to be times when we're mourning, when we're sad, when we're depressed. Nevertheless, we have a right that undergirds us to be able to rejoice. And we have a great example in Job. When his wife says, curse God and die. He said, naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can still rejoice even in times of grief and sadness because there is always light at the end of the tunnel. All things work together for good to them that love God. Maybe while you're on that road, things don't look so bright. But don't get off the track because the game's not over. We haven't reached the final cross line. Joy is the outflow of the overflowing of the heart. The psalmist says, my cup runneth over. What is that referring to? Sometimes, you know, you're you're asked the question, how are you doing? I like to say, too good. You know why I say that, too good? Because the psalmist says, these things, talking about salvation experience, is too wonderful for me. Really? We have gotten something that's indescribable, joy unspeakable and full of glory. My cup runneth over. Joy is the outflow of the overflowing of the heart. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says in Philippians. And again I say, rejoice. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Why don't we have joy? Because we're depriving ourselves of the things that would generate joy in our lives. The fellowship of one another, seeing smiling faces, joyful people. That's God's people. When I mingle with them and I see the the energy that they have from the Lord, knowledge that they have, the indwelling like I do of the Holy Spirit of God, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friends. May God mock you and mock me with this joy, and may that joy be, as it says here in Philippians, rejoice or be joyful always.
Okay, so let's keep moving through this wonderful letter from Paul. We're at verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Now, this is an enormous topic, and we quartet guys have limited time. So I've cherry-picked for us, I think, three points that will help us to understand Paul's admonishment to us at the end of this letter. First point is recognizing that when we pray, we're praying not to the wind, not to the rocks and the stones, but to God, God the Father. So in the context of pray without ceasing, it's pray to God the Father without ceasing. The second point is a recognition. The third point is an action point for us to take. So let's take a look at the verse. Uh, Pray without ceasing. Three simple words. It's a common theme that, that Paul has spoken through his letters, Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, 4, 2, continue steadfastly. Even Christ in Luke 18 is talking about the um, persistent widow going to the judge to pray continually, that thou art always to pray and not lose heart, to pray without ceasing. It's one word, however, in Greek translated into three English words, pro I. Yuskomei is to pray, and pros, P-R-O-S, is the prefix which means to or toward. And so contextually, we see in the use of Paul, it's pray to God. Again, we're not praying to the wind and we're not praying to the stones. It's pray to God. And when I was looking through this, um, I came across something that I just passed on I think is interesting, that... God is the Trinity. So we we pray to the Spirit. We pray to the Spirit to bring revival. We pray to Jesus, save me. We pray to God, Abba, Father, the, the Father. But the Spirit prays to God, the Father. It, Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And similarly, Jesus intercedes for us to the Father. Um, Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus intercedes, prays to the Father. But I never found any place where God prays. And I can stand to be corrected, but I don't think God the Father, God the Father, prays. Interesting. So when we're talking about prayer without ceasing, we, like the Holy Spirit and Jesus, are praying to the Father. Just a thought, background thought. All right, so... We don't have to talk about the posture, all kinds of postures, though I think it's funny, and we have some young kids. We, we teach our little kids, now close your eyes and fold your hands, and we'll pray. Of course, Scripture tells us, look up to God and raise your hands, but can you only imagine what children's church would be like if we taught our kids to do that? So we tell our kids, close your eyes and fold your hands. Any posture is fine. Any time is fine, morning, evening, night, through the watches of the night. Uh, alone we can pray. We can go into the prayer closet and pray to God the Father who will hear our prayer in secret and bless us. Pray to the Father. 
We can pray corporately in church as we do. We can pray when two or three are gathered together. There I am in your midst. We can pray that way. I don't think there is a need to specify when we say pray without ceasing. It is a very big thing. We are praying to the Father. All right. The recognition. Paul in his writings recognized that we are at war. And if you don't think that you're at war, you've got a problem. When you come to Christ, Satan doesn't like it. He is the lion that roams around seeking whom he may devour. Christ came to give us life abundantly, and his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. When we enter into salvation and are born again and cross from death to life, from darkness to light, from being hell-bound to heaven-bound, when we are filled with the Spirit and we are adopted son of God or daughter of God, we are at war. And we need to recognize that we are at war. In, in Ephesians 6, Paul sets out the armor of God and tells us that we need to be about the business of recognizing we're in war. And uh, says that you need to put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places and so put on the belt, the breastplate, the shoes, the shield and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Our weapon in battle is prayer. We can clothe ourselves nicely with protective gear, but our weapon is prayer. Our power is prayer. Now conceive of yourself in battle. You're in a foxhole and the bullets are whizzing by, the bombs are exploding, you're smelling, you're smelling uh, gunpowder and death screams all around. Would you take your rifle and go, eh, take me a little break, you know, maybe I'll check my email, my texts, and maybe grab a cup of coffee, and I'll get back to this later. Would you fight without ceasing? No. <laughs> so would you pray without ceasing? Prayer is our battle means. And so when Paul says pray without ceasing, we need to take heed, pray without ceasing. And then finally, the action. Pray without ceasing is actually one shadow pillar of another pillar holding up this thought of pray without ceasing. Because pray without ceasing presumes you started. Right? Can't stop unless you've started. So it, it really is pray without prompting and pray without ceasing holds up this concept of being in communion with God. Now, you can start prayer one of two ways. You can have a precipitating event. You can be in the plains of Kansas and look out to the horizon and see this enormous tornado spin up coming at you, and you start praying. And it comes and you pray, and it comes and you pray, and it misses you, and you put the end... Period at the end of the sentence, thank you, Lord, you're done. You've stopped praying. But that's not what we mean here. We mean a constant 
prayer, and prayer is communicating with God. When we come to Christ, we're new creatures. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new. We are adopted as children of God, and as children, we are now in relationship. We are in a community with God and other believers, and in the community, we communicate that is praying. And so we need to have that sense that we are in relationship with God. Pray without prompting. We need to know that we need not be prompted, but that we be there so we won't stop. And so the action, I think, that will help us to be there is knowing God better. My wife constantly has reminded and taught me through the years that you need to look at God bigger that you can discern people and how they will act in their faith, but how big they treat God. We need to look at God bigger, and when we see God for who he is, which we'll never do, we'll never see God for as big as he is, but if we see God bigger and who he is, I believe we will be praying without prompting. We'll love to come before the throne of grace and be with him. So consider a couple things. King Hezekiah has been attacked by the Assyrians. He prays. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. God has ears to hear. He can hear our screams. He can hear our whispers. He can hear our inner prayers. He has eyes to see. Hebrews 4.13. There's nothing in all creation hidden from God's sight. But everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God has eyes. He sees everything we do. Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. God has arms to hold us. Psalm 63, 7 and 8, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. In John 10, Jesus is uh, saying, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so we need to recognize that God has these attributes. Even Jesus, when he was about to die, said to the Father, Father, I commit myself into your hands. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And finally, God has an enormous heart. He loves us with steadfast, everlasting, enormous love greater than we'll ever know. And he demonstrates that love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we recognize God's eyes and ears and arms and hands and heart that he has for us, we won't need prompting to be in prayer, a prayer that we're admonished not to cease. Continue with verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If there's one thing I think that offends the living God or disturbs the Lord Almighty, besides as well as unbelief, 
would be a spirit of ingratitude and unthankful spirit. And we see that not only with God's people. If we look at the Old Testament, ancient Israel, we see many times God had to come to face with their unthankfulness and gratitude. But also even we as New Covenant believers that I think we fall short or we can't fall short in our own lives to give God thanks for every precious little gift that the scripture says, every good and perfect gift is from the Father, every small thing, every everything he provides. But also he expects and demands uh, thankfulness and thanks from the world at large because this is his world as well. The book of Romans has a surprising verse. In Romans 1, talking about the ancient world from creation, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. But although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or, listen, nor gave thanks to him, which is seemingly a strange place to put that. They neither gave thanks to him. But in their thinking, they became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. When we stop giving thanks, our foolish hearts get darkened. We become futile and, and, on, and out of our own way. But especially that thinking as God's people to remember to give thanks in all things, but also even the world, I would say today that God expects and demands thanks from the world itself, and but he does not get it from them. So it says give thanks in all circumstances, and you might ask and say, what does, what does that mean? And I would say, does that mean I'm supposed to thank God for like every horrible thing that comes into my life, every, every traumatic event that comes into my life? Should I say, thank you, God, that my arm was broke yesterday? <laughs> well, not, not so much like that, but to believe that God has sovereignly ordained all things into our life and that he, as Brother said before, he brings all these things together for the good of those who love him, to them who are the called according to his purpose. We, like Gary said, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. We, saw, we see God as a master weaver, I would say. He weaves all these things. Even the hard things in our life. Jesus was not immune from these things as well. Uh, if, you look, if you look through the Bible, we can see many examples of people who received hard things in life and yet weren't thrilled about it, but they saw God in it and they saw how he could provide for them. I think of Job. Job was mentioned. He also said, shall not we receive bad things, harmful things from the Lord as well as good things? Right? That's a good way to think, right? We know how God gives us many good things. And if we see even the harsh things as being part of the conforming us to the image of his son, eventually, and, and day by day, working in the inner man, in the inner man and, and conforming us, then we see even the traumatic events with an eye that says, we will get through this. He will come to us. He will be our helper. He, from whence comes my help, comes from the Lord. And, and he will never forsake you. I think of Jesus himself. We had the Lord's Supper last week. At the Last Supper, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. Not just for the bread, but for what he was to undergo, I believe, right? He's going to go in the garden. He's going to become tortured. He's, he's going to be crucified for the uh, sins of his people. And he gave thanks. And the word that the Catholics use for the 
uh, Lord's Supper is called what? Eucharist. Eucharist means thanks. That's what it means. Jesus gave thanks. We think of Paul and Silas who were in prison in midnight singing praises to God, although they were undergoing harsh treatment in, in a dungeon like that. We think of the early apostles of the book of Acts, remember, who were beaten for preaching. And what did Peter say? He came away saying what? I thank you, God. We thank you that we're worthy to suffer for the name. So it's not all just that we want to suffer as much as we see it as part of God's ongoing work in our life. And we've, we've seen our sister Doreen go home. We're saddened for that, but we, we're glad for her home going. We shall one day go home. I remember one pastor said one time he, there was a sad uh, event where a man died uh, through a drowning accident, and he said, everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And I thought, wow, that's, that's so true. We will all face these harsher times, unfortunately, even for, for the, the young, uh, will undergo the same trials that we all go through together. As our Lord Jesus was tempted in all ways that we are yet without sin. We go back in one of my favorite verses, which Brother Fred read, that has to do with Thanksgiving is this. <clears throat> it says, the Lord says, do not, Paul said through the Spirit, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. That's interesting. In, insert. With thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We should remember when we pray, as Brother Rob was saying, to give thanksgiving along with our prayers. Always be giving thanks. You might find yourself wandering off and just start to thank, praise God for what he's doing in your life as well as intercessing, intercessory prayers for others uh, as it may happen. Be thankful, he says. Also in the beginning, he says, be anxious for nothing. This is where thankfulness, I think, connects. This, this uh, verse I get a kick out of sometimes because one translation says, be not anxious. And I always get troubled by that because I thought, well, how, what does that mean, be not anxious? Just don't be anxious. Just don't. I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's not always the way it is. We become anxious, right? So what does it mean, do not be anxious or be not anxious, not over-worried, Right? Not, not over-worried in the things that are coming into your life. There's a certain time for concern. Uh, Jesus told us there is trouble in this world. He says the way is hard. The way is difficult. He also said the day has enough trouble of its own. Remember, don't think about tomorrow. Uh, don't worry about your troubles. If I ask you right now, uh, and th this is probably a bad example, but if I ask you to start thinking about tomorrow, you're probably already thinking about it right now as I'm talking, right? <laughs> troubles tomorrow. Right, going back to work, your boss, your jobs, a car sounds got a weird noise going on. The house needs repair. Uh, your children might be coming down with something. You've got elderly parents, elderly grandparents. Before you know it, you're like this, because we can be anxious. We can make ourselves become anxious, but we can also do the opposite as well. I give you an example in my own life. I. It was about eight or nine years ago, I worked at this job that I hated, you know, sadly, and was getting more despondent as the days went on, had managers and owners above me that were like bullies. I've heard this before, right? So, and 
I got to the point where I just driving, I was just discouraged. Just made. I, I was basting it myself. I was feeding it. I admit, feeding it more than it needed to be fed. I was being anxious, <clears throat> and um, I was getting to the point where I, I just was just miserable. So one day I'm driving to work, and I remember right where I was. I was going around a highway ramp in Springfield. And I just, something, either, either the Holy Spirit impressed it on me or I just thought of it myself. I Probably the Holy Spirit led me to think of it. And um, I said to myself, just start giving thanks. So I started giving thanks, just literally while I'm driving. I said, okay, okay, thank you, Lord, for my job, believe it or not. Thank you for my bills being paid. Thank you that I can, thank you for this car. Thank you that <clears throat> I can see. Thank you that. I have a family. Thank you that we're fairly helped. And you know what happened? The cloud went like this. And then all of a sudden I thought, I get it. I'm getting it here. We got, we got something here. We got something. If you start to give thanks rather than dwell on the anxieties, which are real. No one's saying they're not real. And you don't have severe things going on in your life but when you start to give thanks all of a sudden you're you you get lifted in your in the spirit by the holy spirit and i realized that in my life as well my mother-in-law used to say she's she's still with us she's older but she had a wise saying one time she said to us you know 93 percent of the things i worried about never happened isn't that weird 93% of the things that she worried about never happened. What a waste of worry that is, right? A waste of good worrying. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above in whom there's no changing a shadow. That means that all, even the harsh times are even, the Lord Jesus always told us, don't focus on here, really. Don't invest too much worry here because he's gone to prepare a place for you he himself lived that way as well. He didn't put two. He he suffered. He knew the pain of temptation. He knew the pains that we go through. But he himself said uh, to look to him, and he would be with us and never leave us or forsake us. I guess if I can leave you with just one one sentence, it would be this: When in doubt, when fears assail, just give thanks. Start giving thanks. Alrighty. You know, as everyone was speaking, I'm thinking, those of you who say you can't memorize, these be good verses to start with. <laughs> if you can't memorize these, then yeah, maybe you can't memorize. So 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So please remember, this letter is being written to a young church, a new church. And Paul's closing the letter with some truths about relationships. Relationships with the body of Christ. Our relationships to those who labor among us, our pastors and our elders. He speaks of our relationships with each other. To live um, in peace with one another. To establish oneness and unity. And now our relationships with our Lord. Paul speaks out commandments in rapid fire here. 
Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. For this is the will for God in you in Christ Jesus. And now do not quench the spirit. So the first truth that we need to establish is you are not more powerful than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God of every God. He is the third person of the Trinity. Unfortunately, sometimes spoken of the forgotten person of the Trinity, but he is omnipotent, just as God the Son is omnipotent and God the Father is an omnipotent. Unlimited power to do anything. He is our power source. He is the author of Scripture. He is he who opens the hearts and the minds and the truth of Scripture. If we're living a spirit-filled, powerful Christian life, we are filled by the Holy Spirit. We are crucifying the flesh, and Christ is being formed within us. Unlimited power for the believer. Often in reading the New Testament, we read the word power. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. Example, Romans 5.13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus says that to his apostles. He is the one who caused your spiritually dead soul to come alive. He makes the truth of the word to become precious to sinners who wanted nothing to do with God. He regenerates, he signs, he seals for eternity. He equips you, he gifts you with spiritual gifts to be used within the body. So why would you and me want to quench the Holy Spirit of God? Well, the clearest and simplest answer is because we're sinners and that's our nature and that's what we're good at. The word quench means to retire, stifle, extinguish. The word is used in Mark 9, speaking of the fires of hell that will never be quenched. It is used in Matthew 5, 25, 8 for putting out a lamp. So for us, it's putting water on a fire. It's dousing the flame. The Holy Spirit is spoken of as a fire. In Acts 2, we read that the Holy Spirit came from heaven with a noise like a rushing wind, and appeared to them as tongues of fire. In Leviticus, God wanted the fire in the altar to be burned continuously. God appeared to Moses in the flames of fire. God led the Israelites out of Egypt in a pillar of fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar, Leviticus 9. Fire on the altar served as a constant reminder of God's power. It was a gift from heaven, and no other source of fire was acceptable to God. The Holy Spirit is a fire within us, and all of us are guilty of quenching it. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, Paul mentions that the faith that Timothy's grandmother and mother had, he says, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying of hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Kindle afresh the spirit of God, the fire that's in within your bosom. The evidence of a spirit-filled child of God is me, to me is the one that has the power over the sin, love for all, and a disciplined life. Yesterday, attending the memorial service, we're all speaking of the memorial service because it was so good, of our dear sister Doreen. The things people said about her life 
this is what came to my mind. I said, there was a Christian who was filled with the Holy Spirit, and everybody knew it. And I started thinking, what will they say at my funeral? Well, he worked hard. Or he was a good parent. Or they were generous. Well, I wanted to say, yeah, he was on fire for the Lord. And he fanned that fire. Do you intentionally tend to the fire that's living within you? Were you ever on fire for the Lord? Maybe you haven't been. Maybe you're not really saved. We're never passionate for the Lord. When we quench the Spirit, we grieve Him. Paul says in Ephesians 40, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We do the quenching, He does the grieving because He's a person. That's why He grieves. Believers quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers blaspheme and resist the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples that they, that they had, when they had him and he is leaving them, that the Holy Spirit's going to replace him. That what Jesus is telling them, I have been your teacher, he will be your teacher. I have been your friend, he will be your friend. I have been your guide, I have been your comforter, I have been your resource, he will be your resource and guide and comforter. Jesus was the fire around the disciples, the Holy Spirit, the fire within them. The Holy Spirit is everything we need to accomplish, to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks and, and not to despise prophetic utterances, to examine everything carefully, to hold fast to what is good and to abstain from what is evil. It's all coming from the Holy Spirit. None of that is possible without the Holy Spirit. He is our source of the grace to do the things we need to do. We try, we try to live the life of a Christian like without the Spirit of God, and we're like a foolish Galatians. Are you so foolish having begun with the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the, by the flesh? This is why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the one major reason why we quench and grieve the Spirit. The Spirit of God, we try to live the Christian life by the flesh instead of the Spirit. We are commanded to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can fill our hearts, our heads with knowledge of God, but unless the Spirit of God takes it and applies it to our hearts by grace, the knowledge will do nothing but puff us up. Christ being formed in you is only by grace transforming your heart. This is when information becomes transformation. This is, this is what we do when we quench the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to move us along a path of ever-increasing holiness. This is our sanctification, which means to separate you further and further and further away from sin, temptation, the world, the flesh, until Jesus Christ is formed within you. David said in Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your, with your likeness when I awake. The Holy Spirit is the transforming power that applies the truth of the word to our hearts and forms Christ within us. We quench him by trying to do the work without him that only he can do within us. We are guilty of quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit because he's a person. He loves those he indwells. It's not rules and regulations. It's not check the boxes. Okay, I read, I prayed, so God must be pleased with me. Now, it's all about love. It's about being in a relationship with Almighty God through the Holy Spirit. 
We think of it as legal, legal terms like, okay, I just broke his law, now he's grieving. No, he's grieving because he loves you and you hurted him. It's the same thing with a child-parent relationship. It's the same thing in a marriage. When you hurt the one you love, how do you feel? I hope it hurts. That's how he feels. The fact of the matter is no one loves as much as God does through his Holy Spirit. He has poured his love out into our hearts. This is how we become sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We quench him less. We quench the Spirit in our own lives, and we can easily quench the spirits in the life of others. Those who quench the Spirit in other believers are good at quenching the Spirit in their own lives. If the Holy Spirit of God is in you, he has kindled a fire within you. You bring that with you everywhere you go. He never leaves you. He never departs from you. He will never forsake you. He, he, who's, he started the fire, and only God can start that fire, and it's your part of your job in your sanctification to keep it stoked. Has he started a fire within you? If you don't feel that fire from God within you, you better visit the cross again. The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ to us. Jesus came to reveal the Father. The Holy Spirit came to reveal the Son. Jesus said, He will show me to you. No man can call Jesus Lord other than by the Holy Spirit. I'll close with this. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Unveiled face, not like Moses. The blinders are off. The veil's been removed. And the Spirit of God is revealing Christ to you. And you're being transformed from one level of glory to the next. Progressive sanctification, glory to glory to glory. Who's doing that? The Holy Spirit. Do you really want to quench that? I hope not. Rejoice always. Pray always. Give thanks always. And quench not the Spirit. Those are the exhortations of the Epistle of Thessalonians as it winds down at the close of this letter. Take your hymn.